So I think there's value in having a conversation. I think that's a good starting place. Value in raising awareness about bodies and body work and how it's disproportionately impacting some groups as opposed to other groups. But I think it needs to go beyond that. There needs to be some concrete action in place to change behaviors. Welcome to the Dell Podcast. My name is Saku Mantere and I am the Editor-in-Chief of Delve, as well as Professor of Strategy and Organization at the Desotel Faculty of Management here at McGill University. In this episode of the podcast, we will delve into how human bodies are managed at work situations. Our guest, Professor Rohini Jalan, talks about how contemporary management practice lost sight of the human body and what it would take to bring the body back into the spotlight in organizations. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Rohini Jalan, my new colleague and friend here at Desotel. Rohini has a PhD from Cornell University. She's a postdoc at Oxford and is now an assistant professor here with us, which we're really excited about. Um, Rohini's background is in organization theory and science technology studies, STS. Today we're going to be focusing on something that's really fascinating. That is the management of human bodies. So can I ask Rohini, what got you interested in understanding how bodies are managed? I think it emerged from a conversation with my collaborators and colleagues where we observed how the human body is so ubiquitous in social settings, especially in the workplace, and yet so little management practice and research actually pays attention to it and talks about it and addresses its issues. So it was more about, yes, it's a, it, the taken for grantedness of bodies and how sometimes practitioners and managers and researchers tend to gloss over it sometimes. And that's funny because, you know, the history of management of any kind of organization used to be about managing bodies, you know, how we built the pyramids, how we even, you know, tailors, time and motion studies. So you know, there were men who were shoveling coal and he was there with his stopwatch to, you know, create better ergonomics and more efficient ways of working. So that was the focus of, of a lot of management throughout most of its history was to discipline bodies, basically. So that's a great observation. And I think some management research has really tended to focus a little bit more on the cognitive aspect, the mind aspect of uh, employees as opposed to the body. And so we're surprised by the bodilessness, so to speak, of management practice as well as research. And that was kind of our turning point that, wait a minute, bodies are everywhere in management, and yet there's so little research. that It's important for us to conduct our work on a day-to-day -day basis, and yet there's so little research and attention paid to bodies. So, you know, you use this term body work. What, what does that mean? So body work refers to purposeful efforts to shape bodies, and these efforts are embedded in organizations, meaning that it's managers, it's employees, it's organizations as systems that uh, exert efforts intentionally to shape bodies in some form or fashion. So we think about the types of organized activity nowadays that, that deals with bodies. We're thinking about maybe the military or... I, I suppose, healthcare. Absolutely. There are a range of corporeal occupations where you might see body work, for instance, healthcare. So doctors training their hands to work with robotic arms. 
to do surgery. Soldiers, combat soldiers, there's so many studies done on that. Um, massage therapists, uh, sex workers, people who work in sex shops, uh, any kind of performers. So think about a circus performer. Think about a Santa Claus performer who has to put on a Santa outfit every holiday season and embody the authentic spirit of who we think uh, as Santa. And those are some obvious places to look at to observe body work. But if you come back to organizations, Shake Days Hotels, for example, you and I do body work on a daily basis. Maybe we just don't realize it. So, for example, we dress a certain way when we go teach a class. Uh, we wear certain, we adhere to certain dress codes, maybe our language, maybe our pitch, our gestures. Employees even go so far as to hide tattoos on their bodies. So, for example, some people wear long-sleeved uh, clothing to um, avoid people making judgments about them based on their body work that they've done on themselves, personal body work. Piercings, you might take off your piercings before you go into a job interview. Um, and on the other side of the table, the interviewers are also making these assessments about you as you, uh, they're ascribing meaning to your body as you show up uh, in the workplace having conducted these types of body work. Yeah, so to summarize, there are organizations where body work is very visible and, and acknowledged. But then there's also a very interesting field of body work in organizations, which you talk about in your research, is is the type of body work that we don't notice. Like, you know, right now you're listening to me and you're nodding your head and you're smiling, you're meeting my gaze. We are doing body work right now in, in having this conversation. Absolutely. Like I said, it's ubiquitous. It's every day. It's ongoing. It's ever present. And yet we perhaps take it for granted or don't acknowledge it or don't see it or don't understand the impact of it uh, on ourselves and other people. Uh, and it's not just us doing body work on our own bodies. It's also us doing body work on other people's bodies and the organizations as systems uh, coming up with these norms and rules to, to shape our bodies, how we must dress every day, how we must comport ourselves every day. What I really like about your work in particular is that it, it really highlights a phenomenon that people are actually pretty uncomfortable with, I would argue. So, you know, to because bodily autonomy is is really important to us these days. It's really important. It's contested. It's very talked about in certain arenas of life. It becomes very politically charged, especially when it comes to women's bodies. And what we also highlight in our research is body work disproportionately impacts certain bodies more than others. So for example, women's bodies, black bodies, LGBTQ bodies, uh, aging bodies, um, differently abled bodies, so on and so forth. You've talked about how a certain body is more likely to be noticed than, than another type of body. How, you know, how do you think about this? What does this mean? I think in organizations, especially in management, I feel, certain bodies tend to be venerated more than others. So for example, the tall body or the fit body or the white body or uh, the executive looking body. And the bodies that tend to get overlooked are often bodies that lie on the other side of that uh, spectrum. So somebody who is plus sized or somebody who wears their hair in an Afrocentric fashion 
or somebody who expresses their gender differently, somebody who comes to work with piercings and tattoos, for example. But you know, if we think a couple of decades, decades back, executive life was was long, wet lunches. You know, they 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 would start drinking. You know, during the daytime, they were often overweight, pretty depressed and cranky a lot of the time, and sort of you know that they're typically men. You know, at, at that point, yet their bodies were noticed. They were venerated in in that shape. But something has shifted. We have this this wellness syndrome that has seeped in. I think that shift is fascinating and I think it's being it has been spurred by not just a shift in demographic but also a shift in the culture of organizations where we have more young people taking over leadership positions and maybe that comes in or seeps in from uh, Silicon Valley perhaps because um, you have a younger crowd now that's starting these companies. So you have a younger demographic. Not only that, but they've completely upended the dress codes. And I think that seeped into other places as well. You know, the, the bodies that you were referring to earlier, the older bodies with wet lunches who are heavier set than they are now wearing these frumpy suits, perhaps. Uh, that's not really cool or in vogue but it i think it does reinforce this norm of physically embodying high performance and kind of outwardly exuding or enacting or performing this idea that well if i'm taking care of my body that's also how i'm showing up at work and that's that's in somehow reflective of how i'm performing at work then there's (laughs) <laughs> kind of a very dark side to this this whole thing. So, you know, the bodily autonomy and, and the discomfort on managing somebody else's body. So that there's so many ways that we could think how that could be unethical. I guess there are sort of historical studies of, say, airline stewardesses who were expected to, to weigh a certain amount to fit into their uni- uniforms, you know, purely because of aesthetics, that, you know, that the female body was objectified and presented as a part of the company brand. So... I don't think we're really okay with that anymore. You know, that type of management, that type of body work, if you will. Or are we? I don't think we are okay with that. However, that type of work continues to exist even in 2023. So maybe they're not necessarily going about weighing their stewardesses anymore. However, if you look at occupations such as hospitality, there's definitely research to suggest that in luxury hotels, managers control the bodies of female hostesses, telling them to brush their teeth because their breath stinks like garlic, for instance, or hiring female hostesses based on a certain body type, which happens to be the thin, the lean, the slim type of body. It also occurs in, for example, Ashley Meyer's research on VIP nightclubs, where uh, these managers, they hire uh, women to attract wealthy clients um, and they're expected to look a certain way and it it's not a coincidence that those bodies happen to uh, conform to the slim uh, skinny t- body ideal in that type of setting because a plus-sized body may not be able to uh, garner the same kind of wealthy client that a slimmer body would be. So we see that there's a, a lot of ethical questions that that are easily raised by the focus on body work so now is there do you have some sentiments that you could share in how how more understanding of the bodily aspect of management could lead to 
more ethically robust management practices? One might argue that, yes, it's important to raise awareness and excavate the body or make it more visible in organizational settings. At the same time, raising awareness can only go so far. I think there are more interventions or more concrete practices required for that to actually lead to change in behaviors and actions of managers. So, for example, we all know that women go through maternity, menopause, menstruation, but my manager is not going to come talk to me about it because it's not cool to talk about those things. And women go through so much work. They do so much work that is invisible just to conceal their bodies, to conceal the type of body work that goes into managing maternity, menopause, menstruation, to avoid being stigmatized, to avoid being discriminated against, to avoid retaliation or adverse consequences of being seen as less than their, for example, male counterparts. So I think there's value in having a conversation. I think that's a good starting place. Value in raising awareness about bodies and body work and how it's disproportionately impacting some groups as opposed to other groups. But I think it needs to go beyond that. There needs to be some concrete action in place to change behaviors. Yeah, it's a really complex topic and that that's why it fascinates me at least i'm always exhilarated when i find a topic where people are uncomfortable with that you know they're they're doing something that they're not you know comfortable acknowledging Sako, i think that's true of so many topics in organizations so many people are not comfortable talking about race or class or gender or disability or sexuality and gender expression and this is one type of topic that makes people uncomfortable so they shy away from it and tends to be the people who are not impacted by these types of things, right? So maybe having people get comfortable with their discomfort is a good starting place. Hmm. So I should learn to speak of menstruation more more fluidly. It should be normalized. People don't shouldn't feel like they need to hide or uh, whisper in corners or develop codes when they're texting in group chats. You know, there's so much push these days to bring your authentic self to work. So if we're going to do that, then normalize having a conversation about bodies and in whatever shape or form that might be, may not be limited to menstruation or maternity or menopause. It could be about LGBTQ bodies. It could be about trans bodies. It could be about gender and sexual expression in the workplace. You've talked a lot about... uh body work that women in people in women's bodies do people who identify as women how about the male the biologically male body sort of is there body work that's that's specific to the male body absolutely it varies from not just dressing a certain way but implementing fitness routines and regimens to look a certain way it's also visible in the body work that men often don't do so the straight out of bed kind of hair is a very popular trope because sometimes uh, taking care of your hair or grooming is considered too feminine. So a lot of men would rather not do that to avoid being bullied by their male peers as appearing too feminine. So it's not just in the body work that men do. So take, for example, the casual dress norms in Silicon Valley that so many of these you know, tech startup founders, they're often white and male, but also in the types of body work that they're not performing. So I think we should be paying attention to who's implicated in that kind of work. So in some types of body work, men are really off the hook, like you, know, you mentioned hair care. 
Well, it's not that they're off the hook. There is no ideal. I think we're pushing back against that kind of ideal that it should look a certain way or it should not look a certain way. I have so many male friends who think that if I show up to work with a very well coiffed, you know, hairdo one day, I'm going to be perceived as too feminine. Or if I go get a mani-pedi, I'm going to be perceived as too feminine because only women go to salons and it's not cool for men to go to salons. So a lot of men don't tend to do that. And I'm not saying that they should do or should not do, but what I'm saying is paying attention to the kinds of body work that men shy away from because of uh, the norms around what is considered masculine, what is considered feminine. And often what is considered feminine is the one that's considered to be less than or dismissed or discounted. And so it's often considered cool to come to work with straight out of bed kind of hair or cool sneakers and a casual uh, button down shirt. If you actually look at the difference, women put in more body work in the workplace. They actually put in significantly more um, time and money. Think about the makeup products that they buy. Think about the money they spend on clothing, on shoes, on accessories, and then thinking about how to match one thing with the other because that is what is expected of them and because it shows up in teaching evaluations. I've had so many comments about how I dress or didn't dress on a particular day. Yeah, it's funny. Maybe this is this is gendered, but I, I tend to do the exact opposite, especially when I'm talking to executives. I tend to dress down consciously to signal that I'm not one of you. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, trying to compete in your space. I'm sort of consciously unkempt or at least informal. I've seen this at the different institutions I've been at. So I'm speaking from personal experience, but my male counterparts who go to teach classes, they can get away with wearing jeans and a formal shirt. But if I were to wear jeans, I would be viewed as casual. And I think, and I impose those norms on myself because that is how I've been socialized. So jeans is a no-no for class, yet professors who identify as male do it all the time. Let's talk about the employment contract then. As academics, even you and I, we do rent our bodies because we present our bodies to the classroom, for instance. So how do you think about the the employment contract in, in terms of, of body work? As an academic, if I think about it, like you said, you know, I'm performing in front of a classroom when I'm teaching. I'm using certain hand gestures. I'm comporting my body in a certain way to enact that role. When I do a talk at a seminar, I have to engage with my colleagues. And I imagine that's that's true of all occupations to a certain extent. And yes, you might say that the extent of body work may vary from one occupation to the other, but I don't think we leave our functionalities and capabilities as a body behind at home when we come to work. I think that's a very necessary component of work. So the functionality of the human body is very, very much uh, a part of the employment contract. It just shows up to different, to varying degrees in different occupations. So if we were to make an argument in a nutshell, why is it important to understand body work if we want to understand management better? What would you say? Why is this, this an important topic? I think the work of a manager is essentially managing people. And if you're managing people, why not also pay attention to their bodies? If the body's functionality is such an implicit aspect of the employment contract, shouldn't employers also be paying attention to the bodies that people inhabit and bring to work with them daily? I would argue that it is just as important an aspect of the work they do in organizations as any other component or facet of um, 
the workplace. And I think organizations are paying attention to bodies. There's so much evidence to suggest that they do want their employees to take care of their bodies. Look at any number of wellness initiatives, uh, yoga, mindfulness, uh, walking groups, uh, running groups. So organizations are paying attention to bodies. I just think it needs to be a more explicit conversation. Okay, and sort of how do you stay respectful? So I think boundaries are important, and I agree that Organizations can perhaps overcompensate and find them in tricky situations when they're not paying attention to bodies. However, 20 years ago, it was okay to comment on somebody's body and comment on weight loss or weight gain. It makes me wonder about the development of that norm. How did that become normalized in the workplace? And I wonder what work we can do to change that norm or to create different norms that embody a more inclusive ethos, norms that are perhaps kinder to people, norms that are more accepting, norms that are more accommodative, norms that allow people to think that it's okay to speak about certain issues in the workplace. So it's a lot about listening and sort of learning. Absolutely. I am a huge advocate for raising awareness, educational practices. I think a lot of education might be might go a long way in normalizing certain topics. And I think, like I said, that's a good start, but I do think some concrete action might be required at the same time. I think it needs to be tailored to the organization, tailored to the workforce, because every organization operates in such a different context and such a different with such different cultural norms and constraints, we can certainly implement something in our workplace. And I'm not saying that there should be a silver bullet solution that, you know, one size fits all kind of practice that needs to be implemented. I think it needs to be tailored that tailored to fit the context and its people. So that's a great conclusion for our conversation. So Rohini, I really enjoyed having this conversation and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation too. You can find out more about these topics on delve.mcgill.ca. Thank you for listening to the Delve podcast produced by Delve, the thought leadership platform of the Desotel Faculty of Management at McGill University. You can follow Delve McGill on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to the Delve McGill podcast on your favorite podcasting app.